As you're being seated, I want to say welcome, everybody. Good to be with you, uh, with the people of God in the church this morning. Uh, my name is Chase. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad you could be here uh, with us today. If you have your Bibles, open with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 20. Matthew, chapter 11, verse 20. We continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew as a church. This fall, we're focusing on chapters 10 through 12, where we see for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew real opposition being raised against the ministry of Jesus Christ and his disciples. Matthew 10 through 12 records the different responses people had to the ministry of Jesus and to his gospel. We'll see in chapters 10 through 12 that the world or the culture would persecute Jesus and his apostles. Last week, in Matthew 11, 1 through 19, we saw that John the Baptist, the forerunner for the Messiah, would doubt the identity of Jesus Christ. Are you the Messiah or should we look for another, he asked. Uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they would plot to kill Jesus on account of blasphemy. And the various cities that Jesus ministers in would ultimately reject him. And the section of scripture we're looking at today verses 20 through 30 of Matthew 11, includes what I think is both the most severe and the most comforting words of Jesus contained in the Gospels, concentrated in one section of Scripture. That's what we're looking at today. We're going to see right away that Jesus pronounces judgment on the cities, the people who would reject him, using these words, woe to you. It's a curse and a pronouncement of judgment for rejecting him. But we also see the most comforting words because in verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus demands repentance, yes, but he also invites the weary to find rest in him. This is our God. Let me give you a word picture to describe the ministry of Jesus from the scriptures themselves. Um, Jesus is described often in the Bible as the lion and the lamb. In fact, in the book of Revelation alone, the last book in your Bible, Jesus is called the lamb some 30 times. He's the lamb. But in Revelation chapter 5, we're also told that Jesus is what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is lion and lamb. What are lions like? Uh, they're warriors, they're protectors, they're rulers, they're vicious. And Jesus, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, he executes judgment in his wrath against sin. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But we're also told that Jesus is a lamb. What are lambs like? They're kind, they're gentle. And Jesus, as the lamb of God, is, is gentle with those who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb, and it's good news for us, for his church, that Jesus is both lion and lamb. Here's why. Because a God who is all lion is domineering and vengeful. A God who is only lion-like offers no mercy or grace to his people. There's no mercy in a religious system whose God is only a lion. On the other hand, a God who is only 
lamb-like, is frankly no God at all. He's not powerful enough to do what he says he would do. That's not our God, because our God is what? Both lion and lamb. Our God, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, calls all people to repent at his work. But as the lamb, he extends the invitation of rest to his people. This is our God. And with this word picture in mind, it's going to help frame the 10 verses we look at in Matthew chapter 11 today. Jesus is the lion and the lamb, and our scripture today gives us two necessary heart responses for receiving Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, here's the major theme of our passage today. It is this, receiving Christ demands repentance from sin and rest from works. Receiving Christ demands repentance from sin and rest from works. Repentance from sin. Let's look at chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Uh, Follow along with me as I read. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, pronouncing judgment on cities in his day who rejected his message, who rejected his ministry. Jesus pronounces judgment on these three cities that are in Galilee. Galilee is one of the regions of the uh, country Palestine, okay? And it, was, uh, it is modern day, uh, the Arabian Peninsula in the Middle East. And Palestine in Jesus' day is no more than roughly a hundred mile strip of land, And in Jesus' day, it was broken up into three major regions. You had Judea, and then further to the north, Samaria, and then even further north, you had Galilee. Galilee. And this is where Jesus spent most of his three years, in Galilee. And we're told in verse 20 that he began to denounce these cities of Galilee, where most of his mighty works had been done. Mighty works. The Greek word for mighty works is dunamis. Literally, it means works of power. Indeed, Jesus did mighty works in his ministry. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He gave sight to the blind. He fed the multitude, thousands of people with a little boy's lunchable. He did mighty works. Yet the city still rejected him, the people still rejected him. You know, oftentimes people will say, if I just saw a sign, just one mighty work from God, then I would believe in him. That wasn't true for the cities in which Jesus ministered, and frankly, it's not true for us today. 
Jesus is the sign, yet many still reject him. Jesus, the one who predicted his death and predicted his resurrection, died, was resurrected as the sign for all people to believe, yet people still reject him. People hardened their hearts against the mighty works of Jesus Christ in these cities. And what was their response to his mighty works? They did not repent. Verse 20, they did not repent. And this is why Jesus rejects them and denounces them. To repent means to literally make a 180, to turn and change directions. In another sense, it can also mean to change your mind. We see Christ, we hear his message, we see his works, we know that he rose from the dead. And what's the proper response? Repentance. Repentance, not rejection. In these cities, they didn't repent. The people in them rejected Jesus in spite of his mighty works that he did there. So Jesus mentions five or six cities in verses 21 through 24. He singles out these unrepentant cities and he compares them with Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. And these were massive Old Testament cities. They played a big role in the history of Israel throughout the Old Testament. So we're gonna unpack these towns together to understand what's really going on here. Um, Verse 21, Jesus addresses Chorazin and Bethsaida. And there should be a map behind me coming up on the screen for you visual learners. thought of you today. Um, this is a map of Palestine, the Arabian Peninsula, in Jesus' day. And you'll notice in the middle of the picture is a little blue spot. That's the Sea of Galilee. A lot of Jesus' ministry centered um, around the city of the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Galilee. And Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, those are all uh, small villages just to the north of the Sea of Galilee. He addresses Chorazin and Bethsaida first. Chorazin and Bethsaida. These were small towns. We know that Bethsaida was the hometown of three of Jesus' apostles, Peter, Andrew, and Philip. We know that in Bethsaida, Jesus did a mighty work. He fed the 5,000 in Bethsaida. We can read about that in Luke chapter 9. These were modest towns. They were not massive by any means. They were conservative Galilean cities. Yet Jesus compares them with Tyre and Sidon. Verses 21 and 22. Now compare Chorazin Bethsaida with Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were massive Old Testament cities, empires in their own right. They were at the northernmost part of Palestine. They were probably some 150 miles north of the temple at Jerusalem. In other words, Jews, if they really feared God, had no reason to go this far north. If you read in in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament especially, you'll see that Tyre and Sidon are often the object of prophetic judgment. They're used as the archetype or idea of the ultimate prideful, sinful regime. And Jesus compares these two Galilean cities with Tyre and Sidon. It's unthinkable. 
It's offensive. And then we see in verse 23 that Jesus addresses the third Galilean city, Capernaum. Capernaum. This is also just north of the Sea of Galilee. All three of these cities are within five miles of one another. Jesus did his ministry by foot. And so they're, they're closely interconnected. And Capernaum was a modest and affluent city off of the Sea of Galilee. It was the home base for Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapters 8 and 9, Jesus did most of his mighty works in Capernaum in that section of Matthew. He did many miracles here. And Jesus compares Capernaum with the city of Sodom. Sodom. If you're familiar with Sodom, this is like the Old Testament version of Sin City. Really. You can read about Sodom in Genesis 18 through 19, the first book of your Bible. It's the famous story of Abraham, the patriarch and father of the Jewish faith. He was interceding. He was praying on behalf of the city of Sodom. He was saying, God, if there are even just 10 righteous people in this city, would you spare it from your judgment? The story goes, there were not even 10 righteous people in this massive city of Sodom. And we're told in Genesis 19 that God literally rained burning sulfur on the city of Sodom and destroyed it because of their evil, sinful wickedness. That's Sodom. These are severe words of judgment from Jesus. He's addressing Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. These are like Class B North Dakota towns. You know what I'm saying? And he's comparing them to Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, these massive, evil cities. So the question in your mind, the question I think we need to address is this. Why didn't these cities repent? They saw Jesus' mighty works. They heard him preach the gospel, the kingdom of God, and they did not repent, Jesus says. Why? Jesus tells us. Look with me at verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you put yourself in a position above all others? You will be brought down to Hades. These cities did not repent because of their pride. Pride. The sin of pride caused them to harden their hearts against the mighty works of Jesus and ultimately reject him. Now, here's what's interesting. We can read about Jesus' ministry in Capernaum. We can read about Jesus' ministry in Bethsaida. Nowhere as we read about the ministry in these cities do we read that these cities uh, started a riot in response to Jesus' ministry. There was no violent oppression or overt rejection of Jesus per se in these cities. No, the problem with these cities was that they were not hostile toward Jesus. They were just indifferent toward him. They weren't hostile. They were indifferent. Here's what you need to know. Pride may either be covert or overt. It might take the form of outright rebellion against God or it can also take the form of subtle self-righteousness. And for these small Galilean towns, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum, it's their self-righteous pride, subtle, that led them to the rejection of Christ. 
And this is what concerns me today, is that many people are not necessarily overtly rebellious haters of God. No, many people are just comfortable taking or leaving the message of the gospel. Many people look at the ministry and the good news of Jesus and say, yeah, that's fine, but it has no bearing on my life. Take it or leave it. I'm comfortable where I am. It's this attitude of complacency and indifference toward Christ. And what does Jesus say to people with that kind of heart condition? Woe to you. Look, it's pride, whether outright rebellion or just subtle self-righteousness, subtle indifference. It's pride that ultimately hardens our heart toward Jesus. It's pride that will ultimately lead all people to reject Jesus if they don't repent. And so we know that receiving Christ demands a repentant heart. In verses 25 through 30, Jesus transitions now from a denouncement to these unrepentant cities to a prayerful declaration of thanksgiving to his, to his Father. We see Jesus call all people to repentance as the lion of the tribe of Judah in verses 20 through 24. And we now see Jesus become a lamb for those who are weary. Read with me verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The first section here, verses 25 through 27, Jesus gives us two reasons to rest from our works. Receiving Christ demands a repentant heart from sin, yes, but also rest from works. Here's the basis of our rest. The first reason in verses 25 through 26 is this. The gospel, the message of the kingdom is hidden, Jesus says, from the wise and understanding. The gospel's hidden from the wise and understanding. There are two important words I want to draw your attention to in verse 25. Hidden and revealed. Hidden and revealed. The Greek word for hidden is crypto. If something today is cryptic, that means it's concealed from plain sight. And Jesus takes what is hidden and then reveals it. He uncovers what was otherwise hidden from our sight. He reveals what is hidden. 
And Jesus says the gospel is hidden from the wise and understanding. There's no doubt that Jesus had in mind the religious leaders of his day when he said this. The wise and understanding. These were the religious leaders to a T. They were trained in the Jewish religion. They would have had all 613 commands of the law committed to memory. The whole prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, committed to memory. These were men that understood the law of God. They were wise and they were understanding. Yet Jesus makes a bold claim. This is an offensive claim. He says, you who are wise and understanding are blind to the gospel. You're blind to me. You search the scriptures, Jesus says, elsewhere in the gospels, thinking in them you have eternal life. But you're rejecting God's Messiah standing in front of you. They're wise in understanding. Jesus says the gospel's hidden from them. If our wisdom and our understanding does not reveal the gospel, then, then, then to whom does God reveal the gospel? And we're told. He reveals it to little children. Literally to infants. To those who are humble. To those who are willing to be taught. To those who accept Christ's ministry with simple faith. Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, that unless you become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The gospel's hidden from the wise and understanding. And so we rest from our works because our wisdom does not reveal the gospel. And in verse 27, Jesus gives us another reason to rest from our works, our striving to being made right with God. Verse 27, the reason is this, the gospel is hidden also from the perceiving. Look with me at verse 27 again. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. That's a statement of authority. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What Jesus is saying is this, the gospel, the kingdom of God, must be supernaturally revealed. It cannot be naturally recognized. The gospel must be supernaturally revealed. It cannot be naturally recognized. It cannot be perceived in our flesh and in our own thinking and acting. Jesus reveals the gospel. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man, the one who's wise and understanding, cannot perceive the things of God. I spoke earlier about people that said, I just want to see a sign, then maybe I believe. If I just saw one miracle, maybe I believe. Look, if you have been saved by the grace of God, you have experienced the miracle of salvation. You've experienced the miracle of salvation in which God opened your spiritual eyes to see and love Jesus. 
You've experienced the miracle of salvation where your hard heart is taken out and replaced with a heart of flesh that's willing to love and obey Jesus. The miracle of salvation is one in that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells in you. That is a miracle. And our perceiving, our wisdom, our understanding, our works, they're not going to make that happen. No, the gospel must be supernaturally revealed. It cannot be naturally recognized. Until Jesus reveals God and the gospel to us, until he opens our eyes and softens our hearts, we're only going to stumble in darkness. I believe this is true for many of you. I know it was true for me. I wasn't looking for God when he saved me. In fact, Scripture describes in my condition that I was hostile toward God, Romans 8. I loved my idea of the good life. I did not love the idea of submitting to Jesus as Lord. I hated the idea of submitting to his yoke of discipleship. I wasn't looking for him. All I can say is God was pleased to reveal his son to me and he opened my eyes. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. We rest from our works because our own perceiving does not reveal the gospel, the truths of the kingdom. Rest from works. Now we get to the invitation. This is the culmination of this passage. Verses 28 through 30. Jesus invites the weary to come to him. What does he say? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The word labor literally means to be worked to the point of exhaustion. The word heavy laden that Jesus uses here means literally to be loaded with weight. Notice Jesus does not extend the invitation of rest to the wise, to the understanding, or to the perceiving. To whom does he extend the invitation? Those who are weary, those who labor and are heavy laden. That's who he invites to come to him. The people that say, I have tried to make myself right with God, and I've reached the end of myself. I am tired, I'm exhausted. This idea of labor and heavy laden is, is profound. It would be as if I were to go to someone running a marathon. Some of you are like, that's not happening. Like, go to someone who's running a marathon. They have a 100-pound backpack full of weight on their back, and we ask that person, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm trying to rest. You say, what? Then stop working. Those people who are laboring, weary, and heavy laden. That's who Jesus invites to follow him. And two times in verses 28 through 29, Jesus says, I'll give you rest. This is a promise. This is a promise. I'll give you rest. You need to know that the religious leaders of Jesus' day loaded God's people with the burden of works. In Matthew chapter 23, which 
We'll get to eventually in our series. Jesus pronounces judgment not on cities, but on the religious leaders. He says in Matthew 23, verse 4, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tie up heavy burdens on people's shoulders when you're not willing to lift a finger yourself. The religious leaders corrupted the system of Judaism and they were teaching God's people if you would just work a little harder then God will receive you. They worked for God's grace. They did not work from God's grace. They were burdened with works. The Jewish religious system strived for perfection under the law, and they failed to realize that their good works are like nothing compared to the holiness of God. This thinking is very popular in our culture today. This thinking is very popular, unfortunately, in the church today. Just some weeks ago, I was having a conversation with someone, a follower of Jesus, who described the gospel like this. I figured if I just try to keep the Ten Commandments the best that I can, I'm doing all right. It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. I'll share with you what is perhaps the most crippling but also freeing truth. And it is this, you will never work hard enough to achieve the perfection God demands. You will never work hard enough to achieve the perfection that God commands. This is why Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 61 says, our good works are like filthy rags before God. What then? Well, verses 29 and 30. Jesus offers this solution. Take my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. A yoke was a wooden frame used to join two animals, usually oxen. And what would happen in a yoke setup? was that the weaker ox would be yoked to a stronger ox, and the stronger ox would work the weaker ox to the point of exhaustion. We would call this unequally yoked. And so Jesus uses this analogy, the idea of a yoke, to address our hearts. And implied in this analogy is this truth. We are all under a yoke. We are all tied to something. And the question is, are you tied to the law? Or are you tied to Christ? Are you yoked up to the law, the system of religion that says, if only I would do a little better, then God would accept me. If only I would pray this prayer just one more time, then God would forgive me. If only I would give more of my money and time to the church, then God would be pleased with me. That's the yoke of the law. Attempting to make God 
pleased with you based on your works? Or are you under the yoke of Christ? The yoke of Christ says, my commands are not burdensome. The yoke of Christ, and only the yoke of Christ, invites the weary and heavy laden, the exhausted, to come to him and find rest. This is the truth of Christianity. In fact, I want to close by saying this, bringing your attention to something. Every world religion is based on a system of works. Every major world religion asks the question, what must I do to get to God? Only Christianity, only Jesus is based on a system of grace because of his finished work. There's no more work to be done. Where world religions ask, what must I do to get to God? Here's what Christianity asks. What has Jesus done to bring me to God? We rest from our works because Christ finished the work necessary to make us right with God. And receiving Jesus, it demands repentance from sin, yes, and also rest from works. Only Jesus gives us rest from works. Only Jesus can, as God, demand that we repent from our sin. I can't say this any more clearly. Um, the work is done, Christian. Jesus' last words on the cross were this, it is finished. Christianity following Jesus is not a game of will my good works make me right with God? Christianity is accepting the finished work of Christ, perfect, acceptable in God's sight. And by our placing our faith in him, reconciling us to God, you've been united to God in Christ by your faith. Would you rest from works? And would you repent of the sin that keeps you from relationship that Christ died to purchase? Would you pray with me? Father, we're continually amazed at the truth of your gospel. It's a finished work that Christ lived a sinless life that we could not live, though we might try. That Christ died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin, though he was sinless and knew no sin. And that Christ, three days later, rose again bodily to give new life to all who would place their faith in him. So God, today, would you seal this truth in the hearts of your people? For those that need to repent from sin, I pray that you would urge them in this moment to immediately repent of their pride and trust in Jesus. And for those today that are just tired, 
who say, yeah, I'm, I'm laboring and heavy laden. I need rest. That you would give them the rest that only comes from faith in Jesus. The work is finished. And it's on that finished work your church stands. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.